Well, Dave, you yes? are fired up. I am. Uh, you, you before we started recording, you told me that you did something shocking. Can you share it with the audience? Uh, but you you you've been reading reviews. And not I just did. the ones yeah. that Renee sends us. That's true. Yeah, I did go to the Apple Podcast page because we have been soliciting five star reviews. We are we are literally begging for praise and compliments, okay. which is the it's the name of the game. It's what you have to do. It, it does help people find the show. It really does. So it's unseemly, but it has to be done. Um, long, 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 like right when my book came out. Before my book came out, um, when there were – I, I don't know if I ever told you about this, but there's a there's an Amazon program that I forget the name of where people who are who, – who love to comment on – who love to leave reviews on Amazon are given the opportunity to give advance reviews of books, right? Mm. So, so they check off some interests and whatever and then they get sent advanced copies of books and they get to review them. And so some of my early – like my advanced reviews are very good and some were very bad because the people didn't – like just weren't interested in the subject matter. And then – so they were like, I don't know the songs that he's talking about. Okay. Well, okay. So the book is not for you. Put the shit down. You, nobody you didn't pay for it. You don't have to review it. Yeah. Um, and then I would click on the person and literally in one case – all cat toys and then my book and then more cat toys. And then it's like, you know, somebody wrote a review of uh, some motor oil and, you know, whatever, a, a, a buffet dish and then my book. And it's, yep. well, I like, I don't, I can't, I didn't totally you mentioned, audience. you know, I, I don't know the individual members of Duran Duran, so it didn't really work for me. Okay, well, don't fucking do it. We mentioned this now because I, I then went to my agent and he said, never read reviews, Dave. That way lies madness. Like the very good ones I will send you. Those are the only ones you need to read. Everything else, it'll just drive you nuts. So knowing this, went to Apple Podcasts. We have been getting glowing reviews. I'm very pleased about that. But a couple of people have left one stars and mentioned the fact that sometimes there are pauses. Um, there, it's a, It's a pandemic. We're not... It sounds really good because yeah. we work with some really good people. Matt and I are not in the same room. And then when there is a guest, that person is in a is in a, a separate third room, sometimes in different in a different building in a different part of town, or even the country. And by the so, way, Dave's I should say Dave's pauses when he started this rant were not because of Zoom. Those were because he's so exasperated yeah, at the nerve of people. The but yes, yeah, it's true. It's like we're – and and Ryan is like it, – it's a he's, full juggling act recording everybody's sound and the Zoom recording and mixing it yeah, all together. Sometimes the sync gets off. People freeze. Uh, Matt and I will start, try to start talking at the same time and then it's like – and then we're too polite about letting the other one go. There are going to be pauses. There are going to be pauses. We are doing our best. We are recording over Zoom. That is – the way that it goes. I'm Those shocked. pauses. May, yeah, yeah. Yes. And these interruptions right now that happened yes. because I thought yes. you were pausing, but you were. Yeah. The point is, I, I am shocked that you were reading reviews because you have given me the same advice that your agent gave you. Yes. Because earlier on, I would read our reviews and <laughs> inevitably they were all like, I love Dave. He's brilliant. He's hilarious. Oh, God. Matt talks about Jennifer Aniston too much, and he sure okay. is dumb. And it's like, well, oh, yeah, that's the, no. that's the premise of the show. So you're just simply stating <sighs> facts that we all – everyone's signing up for that. And I, I'm not insulted by it. I'm just like, oh, okay, so that's how we're it's being interpreted. But since yeah, I, don't you gave me a talking Please. to, you don't. I have 
uh, uh, you know, as an act of self-care, only yeah. read the five-star ones that Renee sends us. Yeah, which brings and us. I'm, to- I'm going to be. I'm going to be back to doing that. But listen, we we understand occasionally there's going to be gaps. There's going to be pauses. We because this is we are not recording the way that we prefer to record, which is across the table from another from one another with our guest in the same room. If if you, I'm just going to quote Alanis Morissette. Why are you so terrified of silence? Here, can you handle this? Did you think about your bills, your ex, your deadlines? Or when do you think you're going to die? Or did you long for the next distraction? I, I, the point is, it's, it's, if, if, if we send you into an existential spiral with, with a Zoom lag, we're sorry. Get comfortable with your own silence, people. Why don't you get comfortable with your own silence? We're all gonna have to get there eventually. You know what I mean? That's exactly right. Um, but but the speak. Let's go back to five oh. star reviews. We have one. Yeah, today. yeah. All I really want is a five star review. Um, who who do we got? Who do we got? Oh, bashful you know Bravo what? fan. A bashful oh. Bravo fan Hold says, that "I love the bashful oh. Bravo fan because we just well got a very special visitor." What's going on? Jonathan Bradley Welch is what doing a drop in. Has someone dropped in on our intro? I'm so sorry. No, no, no. I love it. We've never been intro bombed before. So are you guys mid intro right now? Yeah, we are. And that's okay. That's okay. Because listen, we're recording on Zoom. Anything can happen. And because you are a, a professional adult, you showed up five minutes early. I and did. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much. I don't know if my partner is going to arrive on time. Well, or early as I to. did. I'm okay. I'm just painfully early. I'm going to text him now. So okay. I'm going to make this even more awkward for you guys. Uh, do no, you, no, no. Jonathan, do you want to, to yeah. listen while we read a review of our yes. show? <laughs> you know what? Don't even introduce yeah. me. I'm not even here. So. Oh. Well, it's too late. You're part of the intro. True. Okay. This is this is baked in. Great. I'm going to mute myself. This yeah. intro has been like, look, f- sometimes we're a train wreck. Everybody deal yeah. with it. And it's the way it goes. Case in point. Here we are. Dave, I'm so sorry. I no, no. Uh, interrupted you. Please tell us what Bashful Bravo fan had to say. Bashful Bravo fan. Bashful Bravo fan says, Big gratitude for intelligent comma H. Not sure what the rest of that is, but that's okay. Five stars. I love this podcast. Matt and Dave are stellar hosts who have deep, funny, authentic conversations with their interesting guests. I've listened to every episode. I might not be the target audience as a cisgender straight woman. You are. But I rely on this podcast every week to give me a sense of belonging. The guest creativity and resilience inspires me. Matt and Dave feel like home. Oh, I love that. See, that's beautiful. That that is a review that I will let into my heart. Same. Thank you, Bashful real, Bravo baby. fan. Thank you. Don't be bashful about your Bravo fandom or anything. You're a beautiful um, person. Before we get into um, our, our very special surprise uh, intro guests here, should we read this little meet cute story that came Let's our way? Let's do it. Yeah, Jonathan, just to catch you up, it's meet cute season here at mm-hmm. Homophilia. We've just started yeah. uh, sharing meet cutes, and 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 this is our first one um, sent in by a listener, and we're just going to read it raw, cold. Okay, read. yeah. 
unprotected. Hi, Matt and Dave. It's too bad I couldn't get it together for a flesh hunger story, but I'm glad to put my meat cute out into the world. A few years ago on 4th of July, I needed to get out of my apartment and away from my roommates since not much was open and I was getting ready to move into my own place. I decided to hit up Target and start making a list of things that I would need. Matt? While looking at a desk, I noticed a cute guy, quote, looking at lamps, unquote, who was spending more time looking at me. We kept catching each other staring until it was so awkward that I couldn't take it anymore. I finally said, furnishing a new apartment really sucks and ran away. Luckily, I didn't go too far and we kept checking each other out in the end caps from several aisles away until we both ended up looking at sheets together. He finally started an actual conversation and I realized he wasn't only cute, but also nice. I found out he lived not far from me and I was kind of hoping for a little action. So I finally grew some balls and said, do you want to get out of here? (sighs) Dave, what happened next? Well, I'll tell you, instead of inviting me back to his place, he asked if I wanted to split a pitcher of sangria at a nearby Mexican restaurant. I agreed. We checked out and we went up the road. Over drinks, we realized that he knew my best friend and I'd heard stories about him before. On top of that, I knew some of his co-workers through my connections in the improv scene we were destined to meet and kept saying that we should have met a lot sooner at a party or bar, but instead we were blessed with a meet-cute at Target. We dated for three weeks before deciding we made better friends, and we're still close to this day. We love to tell people how we randomly met at the most successful trip to Target we have ever had. Thanks for your podcast and your contributions to the queer community. Lucas V. NPA. Lucas, thank you. Thank you, Lucas V. Target Cruise. Speaking of contributions to the queer community. Yes. Jonathan uh, can I just have you introduce yourself? You're, you're working on a very special project, and uh, I frantically demanded that you get here right away with very little notice. Um, can you tell us what you're up to? Yeah, absolutely. So, hi, I'm Jonathan Welch. I bombed hi, this episode about five minutes ago, so you all, you all know me. Um, I'm joined by my partner on this project, Alex Mohajer. Hey everybody! Hi, How are Hi. you? Good to see Thank everyone. You Good to see you. It's my pleasure. So we are with the Stonewall Democratic Club, and we have launched this week the National Vote at Home Initiative. So among the things that we do at Stonewall, uh, we decided to educate people on how to safely vote at home, how to do it in such a way that basically their votes can't be denied. Um, this is obviously a huge topic of conversation because we have the president constantly trying to belittle the action of voting by mail. Um, so we identified certain states that, that we thought would actually need, need to hear something from us. Right. We targeted 16 key battleground states and states with potential Senate pickups for Democrats with their uh, voter registration deadlines and uh, vote by mail procedures. And we booked in a pretty incredible roster of talent to do these videos for us that we're distributing on social media and just targeting those states specifically. Um, who did we get, Jonathan? We've got Deborah Messing, who did our inaugural <laughs> Michigan video. Oh, we got, yeah. Uh, we have Kirsten Johnston, who was on... <laughs> Third Rock from the Sun, and also we know her because she fell out of the window in Sex in the uh, City. Throwing <laughs> uh, yes. yes. out for Kirsten Johnston. That's right. <laughs> we have um, RuPaul's Drag Race, Miss Congeniality, Nino West, and uh, Michael Yuri from Ugly Betty. 
and a pretty incredible roster. Yeah. We also have Linda Carter, the original Wonder Woman. Oh, so we yes. can't, you know, we can't forget that. Yeah, um, incredible. All the greats. Yeah. That's right. So yes. whether you are or are not in a battleground state, what do you how do you recommend people vote this year? What is the safest, most secure way to vote? Well, look, because of slowdowns in the U.S. Postal Service, we know the Trump administration has launched a full on assault on vote by mail on the voting systems that are required using debunked claims that voter fraud is a thing. We know the studies have been done only. 175 convictions of vote by mail fraud have happened over the last two decades. So it's not a thing. You can vote safely by mail, but because of slowdowns, if you're going to vote by mail, make sure you register to vote first and then register for your vote by mail ballot. The protocols differ per state. So you can visit stonewall.vote, which is the homepage for our um, initiative and find out what your state specific um, deadlines are and make sure you register to receive your absentee ballot now so that you can get it, fill it out, put it in the mail no later than October 20th. We are saying October 20th is election day if you're voting by mail. And if you can't get it in the mail by October 20th, you can take in most states your absentee ballot right over to your local voting precinct or county clerk and drop it off in person with no lines, no wait, no crowds. So safe and easy. And I'm just going to piggyback on that, too, because, of course, we've identified 16 of those battleground states, like Alex was saying. They're either states that we need to obviously win in the presidential contest or states where we have Senate pickups or need to defend House seats, etc. If you are not one of those 16, certainly first check us out at stonewall.vote. But if you don't find your state on that list, check out your Secretary of State's website for your state because they always want you to vote. They do. They want right. you to they want you to participate. So they will put that information out there for how you can safely vote and, and what the protocols and the dates are. Right. Or I will vote.com. It's a great yes. resource for people to register and get your your absentee ballot. Okay. Yeah. Um, so guys. Well, thank you for doing this and and for coming on on such short notice. I, this is just like a, a, a sort of a little mini taste, but we kind of wanted to get the word out sooner than later. But yeah. Please keep us posted. We're here for you. Anything we can do to help spread the word. Um, I, I I love what you're up to. Thank I adore you. Jonathan Welch. Alex, I'm just meeting you, but I adore you already. I adore Jonathan Welch, too. Oh, man. <laughs> Dave, do you? I just had I to. Do. Okay, thank you Dave so much. We just thank met. You. We just met. But I appreciate the board. I was feeling yeah. so needy for your person validation. But <laughs> yeah, listen, guys, thank you. If you guys you. want, visit us at Stonewall Dems on Twitter, stonewall.vote online for more information about this. And we just found out right before we joined this call that Hillary Clinton retweeted one of our videos. So, um, okay. Yeah. We're like, so we've it. made it. We've, we've totally made it. Made we've it. made the big time. Wow. Yeah. And I will, <laughs> and I'll say also, we're rolling videos out daily. Yes. between now and September 16th. I don't know when your episode drops, but, uh, you know, definitely. Tomorrow. Watch. Oh, my God. Perfect. So we just yeah. we just started on the first. So, you know, ki- um, you can catch up with us, like Alex said, at Stonewall Dems and see all the videos. Great. Love it. Thank you for all you do. Now stick around, because coming up in just moments, the great Sam Lansky. He is an editor at Time Magazine. He wrote the memoir, The Gilded Razor. He has a brand new book out called Broken People. 
and he is a dream. He is a dream uh, guest, folks. and uh, yeah. make sure you read that book, and make sure you don't read the reviews. You know what, Dave? I forgot to say my favorite review of ours oh, quickly is one that yeah, just yeah. said, it was like, you know, Dave is, is so charismatic and talented, and I love him. Matt this. is WeHo trash. And I was like, what? That is no. The, honestly, I took that as high praise. Because oh, that's that's who I am I in, in my heart. I, and I, felt, I felt this so seen. Stand. No, I felt oh. seen and I felt heard. Um, <laughs> but you know who is not WeHo trash is no. Sam Blansky. So without further ado, enjoy. Folks, we are back with Sam Lansky. Hello, Sam. Hi. How are you? Where are you? What's going on? At home in Los Angeles. Um, I am. Uh, what is going on? I mean, that's a that's a big question. I think. I mean, it's it's quite a year. It's quite a moment. Um, what is going on for me right now is it's a Monday morning. I'm delighted uh-huh. to uh, be here with you both. Big fan. Uh, excited to chat <laughs> with you. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's what's going on. I think Good. I think like stoked to be here, stoked to talk about broken people, stoked to talk about everything, stoked to talk about Great. everything there is on the docket. Great. How are you staying cool? We are in record heats uh, right now. I'm so glad you're bringing this up because it's something that I really like to talk about. Um, okay. I. Uh, moved about two weeks ago um, from the apartment that I'd been in uh, the all the, the five years that I've been living in Los Angeles. And I moved into a new place that has, for the first time in my adult life, central air. And oh. this is a big deal for me. I have never felt Changes more adult. Everything. I have never felt more I hesitate to say rich. I mean, like I'm not rich, but I got to tell you, messing with a thermostat on the wall. That is rich behavior. Like there is a, there is a, a decadence to it that is unparalleled. It feels like very rich behavior to, to be like, I am going to change the temperature and uh, do that in a, in a way that feels like I have total control. I am, I am just like at the helm of my own future, my own comfort in a way that I never imagined would be possible for me. So, um, so how I'm handling the heat is by feeling like, thank you so much. I I feel like, like a Victorian heiress or something. Like there's just a sort of (laughs) glamour and luxury to the way I'm living now, um, that I never would have imagined possible. Uh, so that's how I'm handling the heat. Where are you both? You're both in, in LA. Yeah. Yeah. We're in, yeah. Uh, Matt is east side. I am in the Valley where it is that much hotter yeah it's it's hotter over there yeah how are you beating the heat i would like to hear from both of you on this subject okay matt i mean look we'll go straight into pool bragging i guess because that's what we were talking about before the interview i I, i'm sorry to play that card right (laughs) out the gate but that is what we were literally talking about before you you jumped on that yeah I think for both of us, like, I I think in general, it's fine for COVID-wise for people to swim in your pool as long as you're still practicing all the social distance rules and everything. But 
we have sort of taken on a policy where it's it's open. Like this is a brutal time. We're all looking for something to do. We're all hot and suffering. Like if you want to come swim, come swim. But now it is, it has gotten to the point where I have to like schedule people. And I feel like I'm running a membership situation where I'm just like putting people in slots and it's frequent enough that I am also telling friends, like, please come over. I won't be hanging out with you. Just so you know, come in, let yourself into the gate. Please knock if you need to use the restroom. Don't do it in there. But otherwise, I won't be seeing you because I, I can't be at the pool in the pool all day. No, I recently rewatched the episode of Sex in the City where um, Samantha uh, like scams her way into Soho House by um, yes. and and gets access to the pool um, by pretending to be Annabelle Bronstein um, when she finds Annabelle Bronstein's membership card in the Soho House bathroom. And that's what this is giving me shades of is like you are you are uh, sort of operating a Soho House meatpacking district rooftop pool of your own. Um, and it's competitive and it's fierce and people want in and uh, only the strong <laughs> survive. Yeah. That's pretty much, wow. I'm doing exactly the same thing. Um, friends come by. We basically just kind of say, you know, the call is 1 p.m. and, uh, and people show up. We have, um, we have some friends with, uh, with a nine year old kid, uh, a little girl who, um, since the lockdown, you know, she's, th- this is sort of our like pod, like the, the people who we've, whose yards we've been bouncing around to and, you know, the kind of small group that we know are staying tested and all that kind of thing. Um, and it's, it's fun for us, but this nine year old girl's, you know, five closest friends are all men in their forties now. And, uh, and that's going to be, <laughs> That's going to have developmental ramifications, I think. And I hope that they're good, but we'll see, I guess. I think it's going to be great and formative for her. Yeah. I think so. I hope so. I hope so. Sam, can we go back to Sex in the City? Are you you having a renaissance with it? Did you just happen to catch an episode frequently? Or what's your relationship with it? Um, I understand that. Um, through a contemporary lens, Sex and the City is problematic in many ways. I'm aware of this. It's not stopping me from um, really digging back in and embracing it. It's been a a vital part of my quarantine uh, survival strategy. Um, I've basically just been watching it on a loop. uh, And I... The more I watch it, the more I think it's like possibly the greatest show of all time. Like I, I, I think the storytelling is so lean and efficient and economical. The fact that these episodes are like 20 minutes and there are usually four full self-contained stories, each with their own arc crammed into a 20 minute episode, but they always feel fully realized and, and like have a wonderful kind of flow to them. Um, the writing is so sharp and funny uh i just i love sex in the city i don't i don't know what else to say beyond that other than like i'm an evangelist as am i i'm so glad to meet a a like-minded person but Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. do you have a favorite era you know for carrie for for her look or for her you know the the big or the fill in the blank relationship of it all well, I sort of miss Skipper. Like we we lost Skipper. 
Um, thank I you agree. so much. Uh, yeah. I feel like we need to put some respect on Skipper's name. Um, Skipper was a vital part of season one. We got a little bit of Skipper in season two, and then we just drop Skipper completely. I sort of like the the roughness of um, the first and second seasons, I think, where um, it was not quite so uh, self-aware and so slick. Um, mm. Carrie's direct address to camera and the like frequent direct address to camera sort of breakouts are very weird and feel like they belong to a totally different kind of stylistic universe than what the show ultimately became. Um, and yeah, I, I, I like the roughness of those early seasons. Although I will say, I think my favorite episode of Sex and the City is what I think is the third to last episode of the show splat where Kristen Johnston goes out the window. Um, and, uh, and then I think that that's the episode that ends with Carrie and Miranda's climactic argument before Carrie goes to Paris. Um, there's something very raw and anguished in Carrie's, um, uh, sort of plea to Miranda about, like how all of her friends' lives are sort of like moving on and moving forward. And she's just like stuck in the same place doing the same things that she's been doing for the last however many years, six seasons, if you will. Um, and uh, it's very plaintive and it feels very raw and it's just like a great Sex in the City moment. But also, I mean, I think my favorite Sex in the City characters are Skipper, seasons one and two, and then um, Carrie's editor at Vogue, Enid, Mm-hmm. Um, played by the inimitable uh, Candace Bergen, um, who I think appears for the first time in season four, maybe season five, and then has that great um, uh, kind of thing with Wallace Shawn in, uh, in yeah. that episode in Splat. Um, that's what I have to say about Sex and the City. Mm. Uh, Sam, have you seen The Broken Hearts Club? Oh my God. Um, the Broken Hearts Club, I believe. So I have a I have a memory. This is so weird. I have a memory of being a. I'm going to date myself here, but I when I was a teenager, when I was probably 14, I had a Netflix subscription back when Netflix was strictly a DVD delivery service, mm, and okay. I used this to. Um, sort of circumvent what otherwise might have been parental supervision and order movies that I would not like, I I I would have a a, a more challenging time getting access to otherwise. And I remember very clearly ordering the Broken Hearts Club from Netflix. And I remember being in possession of that DVD and feeling very, very excited to have this kind of this, this queer experience. And yet I do not remember the movie at all. I don't remember uh-huh. anything about the movie, but I remember the exhilaration of knowing that I was about to watch The Broken Hearts Club. And this is sort oh, of of the threat. same era, maybe shortly after I would painstakingly download pirated episodes of Queer as Folk off of mm. like Napster or Kazaa or whatever the like the the service was at the time. And the files were always so big and I was on like dial up internet. So it would take like, you know, 72 hours to download one Worth episode. It. And I was just like, oh, save, you know, so, so, so excited. 
um, to get to watch this episode. So Bergen Horror Club was like one of those early um, gay media things that I was just so stoked to get my hands on. And yet I couldn't tell you one thing about it, which I guess tells me that I okay. should probably rewatch it maybe tonight. Well, maybe, maybe. And maybe I should do the same because I, I, I bring it up because Skipper is in it. I think I forget his oh, name. I, wow. I want to say Ben Weber, but Skipper is in is So it's about a group of gay. You've seen it, Matt McConkie, right? Yes, but I also I have a sim. I, I have vague memories yeah. of it and I confuse it with Love, Valor, Compassion. And yeah, I know no, Dean not, Cain is, is in not- it. Love, valor, compassion. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, I, uh, so Skipper is um, one of the the group of friends that the movie revolves around, and his wow. entire thing is that he's unattractive. That is his entire character arc is just about Yikes. he's the ugly one in the friend group, which is ridiculous because he's adorable. Yeah. Um, oh, he's very cute. Yeah. The, uh, the okay. So the rest of the group of friends. Now, now I'm realizing why I need to rewatch it. It's Dean Kane who is now probably wow. going to speak at the Republican National Convention. It's Dark. Billy Porter, who now oh is wow, yeah. Billy really? Porter. Yeah. It's Zach Braff before Scrubs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Justin Thoreau. Justin Thoreau is in it. It is not oh, Justin shit, Thoreau. You're yeah, right. It absolutely is Justin Thoreau. Wow. It's uh, John Mahoney. Mm-hmm. Um, Why haven't we canonized the Broken Hearts Club? Well, uh, oh, it's Andrew Keegan who has a cult. A- Andrew Keegan oh, wow. and Dean Cain yes. are like, I don't know. Is it them? Yeah. Well, I don't know. But yeah. This oh, wait, no. Who's the main crazy. guy? Who's the main guy? Who's the main? There's the, the main guy. Oh, Timothy Oliphant is the main guy. Wow. Holy shit. Holy I'm shit. just, yeah, that's a, uh, it. It I don't think I ever have great. seen it. I think I have just seen clips uh, here and there and yeah, sort of smudged it in my memory. Yeah. Wow. Not great. Yeah, I got to but I got to I got to get into this. This this feels mm-hmm. like um this feels important for me. This yeah. feels yeah. like it's it's on it's on the docket for this week. Absolutely. Um, Timothy Oliphant nearly killed me. I'm just going to tell you this story very quickly. I was driving down Sunset Boulevard sort of by the the Standard and the um not the saddle ranch on the other side, but there, there, like there's, like the Baja Cantina or the field, yeah. whatever, like the sort of half outdoor, yeah. shitty, you know, Sunset Boulevard place. And I was driving and uh, crossing Sweetser, shirt billowing in a summer breeze, Timothy Oliphant, and it was just the most beautiful. Like in my memory, it happened in slow motion, and I was just so taken. I was literally driving a car. I looked over to my right to see this this. In this chest be caressed by a, a billowing shirt. Uh, and when I looked back forward, I was fully on the wrong side of the road. Wow. Like I should be dead. And it is because of Timothy Oliphant. Um, what that is neither here nor there. I just thought I'd throw it out. I think it's actually both here and there because <laughs> the thing to note about the intersection of Sunset and Sweetser is that that is where, um, when, uh, Carrie and her compatriots go to LA in season mm-hmm. three. Um, yep. That is where uh, Carrie can't drive a stick and is sort of like jerking off the road is on sweet sir between is, fountain and sunset. Um, adjacent a difficult to the standard. So it's a, it's, yeah. it's a major intersection I think in pop culture history for many of us for is what I'm here reasons. to say. Yeah, yeah. For many reasons. Yeah. 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 Uh, now doing it with an automatic transmission, it's still difficult. 
That is a tough yeah, it's, stop. it's stressful. My last place was three blocks from there, and I would frequently get anxiety uh, mm-hmm. as I was coming up that yeah. hill. Mm-hmm. It's rough. Anyway, I'm glad uh, what else are you watching this. during the lockdown? What are you, uh, or is it all well, Sex and the City all the time? It's not all Sex and the City all the time. I will say that I, um, I, I keep being recommended, you know, sort of challenging, interesting, prestige programming. And I'm watching uh-huh. zero of it. The only right. things I'm interested in watching are, um, kind of well-loved comfort food shows for me that put me into a kind of like benzodiazepine stupor and I just like completely turn my brain off or like true dog shit reality TV. Um, and one of my greatest concerns, I guess, is, you know, I, um, because I, I work in media, I'm an editor at Time Magazine, I, I get sent stuff early, I get sent screeners of, of things. And so um, Netflix sends me these screeners well in advance of like great, great TV. And I watch none of it. And then I will get screeners for um, something like selling sunset. And it's it, it like, you know, truly I'm like canceling meetings. I'm clearing my schedule because like that is now what I'm going to do with the rest of my, like there is nothing more important to me than sitting down and watching selling sunset as the, you know, expensive, beautiful, thoughtful, soon to be critically acclaimed shows just sort of languish on the interface, unwatched and unloved by me. Um, And Mm -hmm. I'm convinced that like, they are tracking this and they know that like the Time Magazine guy is ignoring all of their good shows (laughs) and only watching, you know, Selling Sunset um, or, uh, you know, whatever the the new thing is. Uh, A couple weekends ago, I watched all eight episodes of a reality show called skin decision that I don't know if they even like promoted. I think they just, I think they may have just sort of like dropped in it. You know how sometimes they just like put things out and completely bury them. And like, they only, you only find out about them if you're watching like the right algorithmic combination of things for it to suggest it to you after the fact that they're like not doing marketing for these things. Like skin decision was, is a show in which, um, people who want plastic surgery makeovers, a la the Swan, go to um, a, a a plastic surgeon and a um, and an esthetician who does non-surgical treatments, and they sort of it's almost like the they're competing to see who can do the most impressive work whether it's going to be oh, surgical wow. versus non-surgical, like whether they're actually going to like perform surgery on these people or um, have them do like weird space age, like fat sculpting, lasering shit that is is non-surgical. Anyway, I watched eight episodes of this show um, and have not seen any of the like good TV that people are talking about. So all this is to say, I have a lot of thoughts about this most recent season of Selling Sunset. Um, and if there is anything like sort of pedigreed or high quality that you want to talk to me about, I unfortunately am not the one not because I can't, I just, I, 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 I can't do it. But I, wait, I, I need to know after watching eight episodes of Skin, Skin, skin decision. decision. Skin Decision, yeah. How... What did you learn? What's your big takeaway in terms of um, the like the, the the two big fields? 
It's a like, really good can, question. Can people's you know aesthetic dreams come true by just going to like an esthetician or just getting non-surgical stuff done? Um, so uh, what I have learned from watching Skin Decision is that the um, field of non-surgical aesthetic treatments is very exciting. There's a lot happening there that I think we can all feel good about. Um, there are weird things that uh, people can do that do not require you to go under the knife. Um, as far as I can tell, because obviously I researched all of these treatments um, while watching the show and was like, wait, do I need to get this thing that is like, you know, um, motorized paddles that they hook up to your abdomen to stimulate your ab muscles mm -hmm. to um, give you the appearance of a uh, tauter, more muscular abdomen? Like, is that something that I need to do now. Um, so I did a, a, a pretty serious deep dive and I got to say, I was, I was impressed. I was very, very impressed. Um, the, the esthetician's name is Dr. Jamie, by the way, on, on, I, part of me wants to like pull out my phone and like Google whether this show actually exists or if this is just like a fever dream <laughs> hallucination that I that I had like on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon. Like, did Netflix actually make Skin Decision or did I just dream this whole thing up? <laughs> um, but I'm pretty sure they did. Um, and uh, and it's it's an exciting field. I mean, I I it was a sort of weird conceit for the show because they would do the sort of non-surgical stuff on someone and it would be like, oh, wow, like, you know, she looks great. Like, she looks, you know, refreshed. She looks a little, you know, like, whatever, like, lovely. And then they would do, like, a whole big, you know, like, tummy tuck thing or a facelift thing with the, with the surgeon. And that would be obviously much more dramatic because surgery is very dramatic. And so it was a little bit like apples and oranges and, like, the, the kind of basic premise of it felt a little bit flawed. I will say that I feel like I learned a lot. My favorite episode was the finale, episode eight. I'm, I'm literally going to Google, does this show actually exist? Does, <laughs> is Skin Decision real or did I make I'm the whole thing I'm pretty sure up? it is because I do think that it has been marketed to me and rightly so. I haven't watched, but I'm skin decision certain. before and after. Yeah. Um, yes, this, uh, this is, this is a real, this is a real thing. Um, uh, so, um, the deal with these kind of, uh, new age aesthetic treatments is like, I think they get you pretty far of the way there, but in terms of like really the, the sort of dramatic thing, I don't know if there's a substitute for, mm. um, for for going under the knife but surgery. i was about to say my favorite episode was the final episode for whatever reason i can't remember i think she was anemic um the the woman who was supposed to undergo surgery um it turned out that she was not able to undergo surgery and so there were medical complications that would prevent her from doing so. And so they made the arc of her storyline in the episode about her learning to love herself without actually changing her appearance at all, which was super weird and felt sort of antithetical to the 
basic idea of the show because the idea of the show was that you have people getting, you know, weird procedures done to make them look different to kind of, you know, solve the, the um, real or perceived problem of, of the way they look and their experience of it. Um, and so then making the whole thing about actually what this was really about was self-acceptance and self-love was just like so such a wild reach and so totally disingenuous that I kind of had to respect it. It was, it was like an <laughs> audacious producerial choice um, to be like, actually, we're going to tell you what this is really about taking right. vitamins and learning to love yourself, not getting faceless and tummy tucks. Um, mm. And we were sort of just expected to go for it. I really liked that. I liked how, that shit it was as a kind of choice. Well, it is kind of a perfect segue into broken people because um, it, I don't know if the, if there is a part of you that is similar to the character, Sam in the book, who is, uh, there is. extremely I'll self-critical I'll, and because <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure if, if skin decision existed in the world of the book, the character would also be watching all eight episodes and, taking notes yeah that's absolutely true yeah that's definitely the case and where are you it i mean there's so much more to talk about in, in the book besides that but where are you now in your own you know journey towards self-acceptance and um and like grappling with the all of, you know the, the body issues that, that uh so many gay men struggle with I would say I I continue to be sort of on that journey, I think. You know, I have thought to myself, and just for context, um, uh, I should probably explain Broken People is a book uh, that I wrote that came out in June. That's a novel about a guy named Sam, who is much like me, who um, meets a mysterious shaman who claims that he can fix all of his emotional problems in three days. And Sam is intrigued because Sam basically fucking hates himself um and goes on this kind of journey of self-discovery that takes him down through his memories and and through his experiences um to uh to sort of unpack um what brought him to this place and and ultimately he ends up sort of interrogating what does it mean to think of yourself as someone who's in need of fixing in the first place right like what does it mean to um perceive ourselves as people who are broken or people who are in need of um people who are sort of problems to be solved. Uh, so I think in many ways, you know, I, I in the writing of the book, I, I had become very curious about um, what are the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are, uh, which sounds kind of abstract and and like big picture philosophical, but I, but I actually mean it in a very specific and kind of tangible way. You know, as someone who had written a memoir um, and someone who's who's written a lot of personal narrative and and who really loves personal narrative, I was curious about the ways in which all of our personal narratives, whether that's writing a book or an Instagram caption or recording a podcast or talking to your friends or your therapist or whatever, how these stories we tell about ourselves um, help kind of shape and inform the experiences we have out in the world and and how we kind of construct the narratives of our lives. Um, so I think in many ways, writing this novel, which is about a guy named Sam who, you know, shares a lot of I think, DNA um, with me, but ultimately it is a work of fiction and it is a novel, was a way for me to kind of dig into that question of um, 
narrative and what it means to narrativize ourselves or versions of ourselves and how, you know, in my experience of it, every time we open our mouths or, or set down, uh, set down a, a keyboard um, to tell a story about ourselves, it's inherently a work of fiction on some level. You know, it's, it's always sort of a, a, a form of self-delusion or a form of self-deception. And so I think my, I say all of that before I actually answer your question, <laughs> Matt, because I think, um, you know, my journey with my own self-acceptance is sort of its own thing that lives independently outside of the world of the book. Um, and the book was a way of sort of imagining or envisioning uh, the version of that story that I really wanted to share with the world, which may not be the exact same one that I I experience intrapersonally in my own life, in my own experience, um, but instead was a kind of, I guess I should say the most hopeful possible version of what it would be like to move into self-acceptance. And I think that's something that I've experienced in many ways. And, and it's also, I think, a, a, a place where I still feel like I have a lot more work to do and a lot more growing to do. I think there are a lot of ways to read the book. Uh, and, you know, one way to read the book, and I think a, a, a credible way to read the book is truly just a, as a document of someone kind of like coming to terms with the reality of, of an eating disorder effectively. I mean, that's so much of what the book is about is about, you know, body image and, and body dysmorphia and self-loathing and the body kind of phenomenologically. Um, and, you know, I think as anyone with experience with the eating disorders knows, that's not a linear journey of recovery. It's not like you start at your sickest and then like are on a constant journey to getting better. You know, I feel like in my experience of my own body, you know, I have days where I'm like, you know, I am fully normal. And then I have days where my brain feels totally broken. And I look in the mirror and I'm like, not only am I, you know, not only am I too fat and disgusting to, um, you know, leave the house, I am too fat and disgusting to even like go on living, you know? And, and I think that's just like a, um, that is like an, an eating disordered thing. I should probably say like trigger warning eating disorders at some point, but you, you know what I mean? Um, like that is a, uh, that is a function of having this part of me that's, really sick and dysfunctional that I've had basically my entire life. You know, I, I spent my 19th birthday in inpatient eating disorder rehab where they forced each of us to eat one cupcake and then lock the rest of them up in a cabinet. Um, like, you know, this is a, this is a, a world that I've been kind of living in for a really long time. And I think there are good days and there are bad days. And I think accepting the reality of, the sort of imperfect process to growth and healing. And instead of being um, prescriptive about it, or instead of uh, demanding a kind of linear growth or change or healing from that, understanding that it's, it, sometimes it's going to be two steps forward and one step back. And um, sometimes the, the best I can do is just sort of exist in 
my body for the rest of that day. And then there are days when I'm going to feel really good about myself and like all of that is fine. Um, I think that, that sort of acceptance of the um, peculiar up and down of the experience as opposed to demanding to be fixed or better or healed or made whole feels like the growth for me personally. I think in Sam's journey, he really wants to be made better. And I think in some ways he gets that and, and in other ways he doesn't. That was a very long answer to your question, but did all of that make sense? No, did that cohere? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful answer. Your last book was a memoir and Sam, the character is, is a writer whose last book was a memoir and yeah. is, um, you know, sort of, um, hedging as to whether the next book should also be, or maybe the next book should be a novel. So can you talk about the decision to, to write this as a novel instead of a follow-up memoir? Yeah, I, I think, as I said, this, um, this question had been really haunting me of, you know, what does it mean to tell our stories? And, and, and again, I think it's easy for that to like, you know, upon being asked that question, I would immediately sort of check out because I feel like we're wandering into this kind of like abstract philosophical territory um, <laughs> that I don't think is particularly interesting. But again, I, I'm really talking about like in the most tangible, tactile possible way, what does it mean for us to tell our stories? Um, and, uh, and I think the, um, the articulation of my own story as a memoir, as someone who had really always wanted to tell my own stories, as someone who had wanted to write memoir, as someone who'd read a lot of memoir and, and kind of studied a lot of memoir, um, that felt like the kind of, uh, the furthest thing to which I could aspire. Like it, it was just like the coolest thing I could imagine possibly do. And I was really fortunate. You know, I, I started my career as a writer. Um, I, I got the deal to write my memoir, um, which is a book called The Gilded Razor, when I was 24 and living in New York, kind of starting my career. Um, the fact that they were that anyone will hand a book deal for a memoir to a 24-year-old is insane. And I think I knew at the time it was insane, and I felt very, very, very fortunate. Um, but, you know, the story I, I thought I wanted to tell was the story of my teenage years, which were really, you know, chaotic and dysfunctional. And I, you know, went to high school in New York City and um, was around a lot of people with a lot of privilege and, um, you know, did a lot of drugs and, you know, all of my, um, boyfriends were super age inappropriate and, you know, had this sort of journey through, um, addiction and recovery. Um, and I spent a long time living in that story, trying to tell that story in the form of this memoir. You know, I, I got to be when I was 24, the book came out when I was 27, um, I'd started writing it when I was 19 or 20 uh, around the time that I got sober. Um, and, uh, and so I spent the better part of a decade living in this story about having been this fucked up teenager, trying to tell that, you know, sitting at my desk writing about how bad I was, what a sort of fucked up dysfunctional person I had been. So I'm spending all these years steeped in this story about my own badness. And then I, and I think that's a um, virtuous thing to do because I have this idea or this narrative that 
um, by telling my story, I'm necessarily doing a good thing, right? I'm doing this sort of like brave, important thing by telling my own story. And then the book comes out and I've spent, you know, like a decade living in this narrative about what a piece of shit I am. And I'm surprised that I don't feel good about myself, right? Like, you know, like, of course I don't feel good about myself. I've spent the last, you know, 10 years staring at screens, writing about what a monster I am. And then I expect to have a healthy self-worth and a healthy self-image. It's like, of course I don't. Like, I, I've, you know, been living in this story of my own dysfunction, literally commoditizing it, right? Like, you know, like getting paid profiting off of the narrative of my own badness and then i scratch my head or you know call my therapist and i'm like it's so weird that i don't feel good about myself obviously i don't feel good about myself so what i really wanted to do with broken people was sort of change that course and rectify that in some way and write a book that was about the inherent goodness and the kind of hope of someone who maybe doesn't like themselves very much or, or, or is struggling to find self-love or self-compassion. And it felt like, truthfully, the only way I could really do that, the only way I could truly love that character enough for... Um, to, to endow it with the kind of kindness that it needed to not just be toxic on the page was if that were not me, if that were not the letter I, because my own journey with self-love and self-acceptance has been so fucking vexed that if I was going to make that a story about me as I am the letter I I just don't know if I would have been able to love that Sam enough to do the story justice. And so in making him a character, the narrator and character of this book, it felt like a way to sort of depersonalize it from me and detach from it. So I could love it the way I would love a friend or a partner or a member of my right. family. You can and I could love that Sam. I could forgive that Sam in a way where I still really struggle to be that kind with myself. So yeah. on some level, it was a sort of formal and genre experiment. You know, I mean, like, I think it sort of it exists in this kind of curious place between memoir and fiction. It, it's sort of autofiction, but it's, it's so much a kind of meditation on um, our sort of memoiristic tendencies and, and the ways in which we um, self-narrativize. Uh, you know, e even more than it's a kind of narratively built story or adventure, like it's it's really about those ideas, I think, more than anything else. Um, but it also felt like it was a sort of necessary function of my own work, where I knew I was gonna write myself into a hole, if this were um, told from an I, if this were told from the letter I, and it was only by getting a little bit of distance from that Sam, that I could be kind enough to him to tell the story the right way. Did it help you find like some sort of closure with that part of your psyche or that part of your story, fictionalizing it a little bit? Yeah, I think it did. 
I think it did. You know, I had this experience with writing my first book as much as, as I say, I think it was a, a process of also kind of healing from that because I'd spent so many years sort of steeped in this, you know, mess of my own making where I was just like, God, I am the worst. Um, I, I also had this, um, I had this sense of sort of completion or of separateness from the memories and the material where it was like, I had taken what um, felt like it was a lot of pain and made something useful out of it that was a sort of service to other people that was sort of now existed as a thing that had its own kind of engine that was doing its own good in the world. You know, maybe it helped somebody who was struggling with addiction feel less alone. Maybe it helped someone, you know, with a family member who was an addict kind of understand um, what it's like to be in a brain like that a little bit more intimately, whatever the, the thing was. Um, and I should say, I did not write the book to help people. I wrote it because I'm, you know, vain and love attention and, you know, wanted to be kind of taken seriously as a writer. Like it was not mm. this, you know, like great heroic noble thing. I wasn't like, if I can just save one life, it'll all be worth it. Like yeah. no, that never crossed my mind. I was like, pay attention to me. Um, but, uh, but I think the, the net out of it was that it did help people. And, and I heard from people that it helped and, and that was really moving and that was really meaningful for me. So I think I've never found writing to be all that cathartic. Like I think writing is work and I think good writing is an exercise in craft, not in catharsis. And I think if you're vomiting up onto the page, what you're writing probably isn't very good. And maybe it's like diaristically helpful or like a good therapy exercise, but like, please don't make anyone read that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I did experience a kind of closure with that first book where it was like, I get to be done with this part of my life. Like I am not sort of right. haunted by this part of my life. I don't have it sort of hanging over my head in the same way because I've sort of, um, I've made something from it that now it gets to be where it no longer belongs to me. It belongs to the people who are, who it belongs to the book. It belongs to the people who are reading it and having experience with it. And I've had a similar thing with broken people where, you know, it's, it's very much, if my first book was a kind of document of my teenage years, broken people feels very much like a document of my, my twenties. And, um, you know, a lot of the kind of mistakes I made in my twenties and the, the, um, uh, paths I sort of wandered down, um, and it feels like I get to be sort of done with that, I guess. And, you know, the experience of hearing from readers, of knowing that people, you know, have, um, have seen themselves in this story um, or, or it's resonated with them in some way. I think I found that to be really freeing for me because it's like, okay, this is no longer just my fucked up past that existed solely to teach me lessons that I'm not even doing a very good job of sort of hanging on to or, you know, kind of implementing in my own life. It's like this gets to be something for other people that other people can, um, you know, learn from or, or you know, kind of, it, can, it can nestle its way into their heart and make them feel or think about themselves or their worlds a little differently. Um, and that feels like... Uh, it is if it, it feels it feels useful, I think. It feels useful and it feels like closure. Um 
Before we let you go, we have to ask you about your love life. As yes. you uh, are, you know, in this uh, gorgeous new home and promoting the book remotely and watching Sex in the City and Skin Decision, is there anyone significant doing it with you? There is. There is, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a, a gentleman companion who uh, I actually met during the pandemic, which seems like it should be impossible. Um, but, uh, but despite all odds, we, uh, we found each other. Um, and that's been really lovely and very welcome. I think, um, after, uh, after the, the top part of, of the quarantine era was very lonely and very crazy for me. And I would not say I was my most graceful self, um, kind of climbing the walls as in my single status um and uh having a person to hang out with has has been really really nice how did you meet we met on an app and um yeah which is awesome um i um i yeah, we, we, we met on an app and um, we started FaceTiming and then we hung out outdoors, I should say. We hung out outdoors. Um, Great. Uh, and um, just kind of vibed and he had never seen um, Wild Things with um, oh. Nev Campbell and Denise Richards. And I was like, this is a really important cultural education for you you need to come over and watch wild like i don't like i don't care what else happens but like you need to come over and watch wild things i want to watch someone watch wild things for the first time you know what i mean um Uh, yeah like that sounds really gratifying for me uh so um so he came over and and watched wild things and uh the the rest is history um so far so far so good um he's uh He's lovely and not a toxic narcissist, which is a really great change of pace for me. Um, and I'm just trying not to fuck it up. So can, can you quickly talk us through like the mechanics during COVID of going from the apps to in person? Was there testing involved? Was there quarantining? So there was not um, – So I had gotten, I gotten an antibody test not long before we hung out. I've been, I've been pretty, um, I wouldn't say I've been religious, but I have been very responsible through the pandemic. I have not done a lot of even kind of like outdoor socializing. I I haven't really been seeing people. Um, The first two months in particular, I was just completely, completely alone. Um, So we um, met and went for a hike, and then, uh, and then, you know, I knew that he hadn't seen anyone, and I hadn't seen anyone, and I had been tested not long before. So, I mean, you know, I think I, I've thought many times that, like, you know, the it feels like the world has become one big sort of safe sex metaphor, and this stuff about like. Um, you know, uh, how many partners and how recent were your partners and how long has it been and how safe were you? 
um, feels like something that is uh, familiar to <laughs> these are familiar conversations mm. to gay men, um, in particular, in a lot of ways. Uh, and, um, you know, I felt like hanging out with him one on one was a kind of calculated risk that I felt comfortable taking, knowing that I hadn't really seen anyone in a way where, you know, I would have been vulnerable to exposure and going out on a limb and, and trusting him that he had not really seen anyone in a way that um, would have would have created a sort of window for exposure. And he's still, you know, I, I, I have a yard in the place that I just moved into. So like I've had a couple friends drop by and sit, you know, uh, across the yard from me while we catch up or whatever. But beyond that, I haven't really um, seen anyone. And then last weekend, um, a friend uh, who had rented a house in Ojai invited us to to come out to Ojai for the weekend. And her requirement was that we get tested before we come because um, it was just going to be us, you know, in a small group. So uh, the, the guy I'm seeing and I went last week and got tested together and um, – happily we're both negative and so you know uh all all good there do you think that was responsible enough i do yeah yeah i sort of it's it's so the the like i think the the worst thing about this whole kind of era is this like everybody just making it up as they go along and like no sort of consistent rules i find it very confusing um it feels like there's no kind of clear wisdom on on what we should all be doing and what's interesting to me about it is that there's something there's like kind of an extra layer of romanticism to the the tension from you know seeing each other in a socially distant way to deciding that it is okay to like be in each other's homes and be like less than six feet apart to like the first physical contact and the first kiss and everything feels like it would be so much more loaded than it already is yeah that that piece of it i think it it there has been a little bit of like uh of of um you know sexy danger in the whole thing um but uh but beyond that what's been really interesting about it is um that um there's so on one level it feels like a a it feels like a, an intimacy amplifier, right? Because like, we're basically just hanging out with each other. We're probably seeing more of one another than we would otherwise because the, what the fuck else is there to do? You know, like, you know, in my, in my previous life, I used to go to events. I had dinners, you know, with friends or colleagues. Like I, I had a pretty dynamic social schedule. And in the absence of that, with my evenings, for the most part, free, uh, so, um, so it, it's, it feels like we've gotten to know each other really quickly and it's been more intense than it would otherwise because we're mostly just hanging out with each other. But here is the plot twist because there is no society to perform a relationship in. There are none of the normal milestones of like meeting each other's friends, going to a thing together, kind of entering each other's lives because the only way we're entering each other's lives is by hanging out with each other one-on-one. So like on one level, it feels like it's moved very quickly. And on another level, it feels like we are at the same sort of point of intimacy that we were a week into hanging out because none of the external stakes are giving us kind of markers on the road to 
increased intimacy or like relationship progressing? I mean, can you imagine if you never met your partner's friends or like, you know, never went to a birthday party together, or like, you know, saw how they treated a server at a restaurant or, you know, like all, all of the things that are these kind of out in the world um, uh, signposts on the way to getting closer to someone do not exist. So it's, it's been very, very weird. It's great, but I'm like, I would love to know how he acts at a restaurant. I have no fucking idea. You know, will I ever find out? Like, watch this space, you know? Wow. Well, please let us know when you do. Yeah, <laughs> I will. I We're going to need frequent will. updates. Yes, uh, absolutely can do. The book is Broken People. Add it to your um, mandatory summer reading list. Mandatory? S- mandatory, yep. yeah. Wow. I'm flattered and honored. Um, Sam, you're a delight. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so, so much. Oh my God. It was an absolute pleasure. Love you guys. Love the show. Thank you both so much for having me on being so generous about the book and everything. It was a true pleasure. And I hope you stay safe and sane during core. Back at you. Go yell at that leaf blower guy. I'm going to yell at the leaf blower guy and I'm going to watch the broken hearts club. Yeah, you are. And then we'll talk. Hell yeah. Well, Matt, we've come to the end of another episode. Dave, 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 Dave. Thank you for being here with me, giving me a reason to live. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for reviewing us on Apple Podcasts with five stars only, of course. Thank you to Renee Colvert with a T, mm-hmm. our, our producer. Thank you to Ryan Connor, our engineer. Thank you to everybody at Earwolf. Uh-huh. Thank um, you, Ben Wise, for the music. Yes. And thank you, listener, for listening. Uh, tell a friend. Leave a review. We love you.